Clint Schwartz. I'm the lead pastor here at Lighthouse. Thanks for joining us today. Who's excited about Christmas? I get pretty excited about Christmas. I don't know about you guys, but that's my favorite time of the year. Um, and uh, one of the things that I love to do is to watch some of the Christmas classics. Anybody? Like, yeah, love doing that. It kind of gets me into the, the Christmas mood. And so we decided this year, as part of our Christmas focus, we're going to take a look at some of the Christmas classics and try to find the biblical truths within them. Uh, our, our message series for the month of December is called Christmas Reels, Christmas Reels. And I love watching these movies, but I'll tell you what, I like watching them with snacks, right? Anybody like snacks? So we wanted to actually start off uh, each week by watching a clip or kind of an uh, overview of one of these movies, but we didn't want you to do it without snacks. So come on in, guys. I think we're ready. Open. Yeah, they're not paying attention, but yeah. So come on. Come on in. Here we go. Walk in. There we go. Yes. So pass them out. Go, go, go. Everybody, we got some dots and M&Ms, so you get to one of them. So just grab one and go, and we're going to get started with the movie in just a minute. All right, quick. Go. Got to make this fast. Move, move. suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Where do you come from? Heaven. What did what, you say just a minute ago? Why do you want to save me? Was it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. I'm leaving right now. I'm going to school. This is my last chance. But they'll vote with Potter otherwise. You can't laugh off this Bailey Park anymore. Bailey family's been a boil on my neck long enough. Do you realize what this means? It means bankruptcy and scandal and prison. That's what it means. I'm worth more dead than alive. Why don't you go to the riffraff you love so much and ask them? I suppose it'd been better if I'd never been born at all. All right. You've got your wish. You've never been born. You've been given a great gift, George. 
chance to see what the world would be like without you. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. Nineteen forty-six. Anybody like that movie? Yeah. For those of you that didn't raise your hands, you need to watch it this Christmas season. Let me give you. I'm going to spoil it though. If you haven't seen it, let me give you kind of the synopsis of the movie. Um, so George Bailey had spent his entire life giving of himself to the people of Bedford Falls. He has always longed to travel, but never had the opportunity in order to prevent rich skinflint, Mr. Potter, from taking over the entire town. All that prevents him from doing so is George's modest billing and loan company, which was founded by his generous father. But on Christmas Eve, George's Uncle Billy loses the business's $8,000, which that was a lot of money back in 1946, $8,000, while intending to deposit it in the bank. Mr. Potter finds the misplaced money and hides it from Uncle Billy. Then the bank examiner discovers the shortage later that night. George realizes that he will be held responsible and sent to jail, and the company will collapse, finally allowing Mr. Potter to take over the town. Thinking his wife, Mary, their four children, and others he loves will be better off with him dead, he contemplates suicide. But the prayers of his loved ones result in his guardian angel named Clarence coming to earth to help him with the promise of earning his wings. So the angel Clarence saves him from killing himself, but George is still depressed and suicidal, so Clarence grants his wish. He gets to see what life would be like if he had never been born, and he sees that the world was much worse off if he wasn't around. So he finally realizes this, and that he had really, at that point, everything he had ever wanted. Clarence brings him back to reality. But he's still facing scandal, right? He's still facing jail because of the lost $8,000. But that's not the way the story ends. Here, let's watch the end of the movie. Mary did it, George. Mary did it. She told some people you were in trouble with it. They scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't ask any questions. Just said, George in trouble. Tell me. What is this? Uh, like like another run on the bank? Here you are, George. Merry Christmas. There we are. The line farms on the right. Here's your 
So he gets the money, right? In a very creative way. But here's the deal. When George had lost that money, he didn't see any way out of it, right? He was facing jail. He was facing scandal. He was depressed and suicidal in that moment, and he wished that he had never been born. George had lost something, right? He had lost hope. He had lost hope. As hope is something that we all, we all need. Here's the definition of hope. A desire accompanied by expectation of or belief in fulfillment. So hope is believing that something good is going to come. I like the way that Thomas Jefferson defined it. He said, the bridge between failure and success is hope. So when all we see is failure and success is hard to see, hope is the bridge between the two. Then Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, say that three times, says, to live without hope is to cease to live. I think that's pretty interesting. Hope's pretty important in our lives. And then there was an Italian proverb that I found that says, hope is the last thing ever lost. Right? Because when we've lost hope, we've lost everything. Hope is very important in our lives, but it's also important in our faith. It's the foundation of our faith. Hebrews 6.19 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Our hope in God is our firm and secure anchor for our soul. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. See, God's desire is for us to have hope and to give us hope. And then I love this verse from Isaiah 40, verse 31. It says, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So if you're not soaring, if you're not running, if you're not able to walk, what you might have lost is hope. Because hope is our strength. Hope is our strength. And I believe that some of the reasons for the popularity of this movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is that we can relate to George. A bad situation had happened, and he was, really, he had lost all hope. But then, that's not the way the movie ends, and I'll just say, that's not the way life ends either. God has hope for us, every one of us. So today, we're going to be reading a story in the Old Testament. This is a story where people of a town had given up all hope, and they couldn't see any way that their circumstances were going to be turned around, and yet God comes through in the end. So you can turn your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, chapter 6, and this story takes place in the Israel city of Samaria. The main characters are Ben-Hadad, who is the king of Aram. And then we have the king of Israel. Doesn't mention his name, but he's probably King Joram, the son of King Ahab. And then we have the prophet Elisha. All right, those are the main characters. 
Now the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, is attacking the city of Samaria. And back then, when you would attack a fortified city, you wouldn't just go and knock down the walls. You would actually surround the city and keep everyone from leaving and keep everyone from going into the city. And so the hope is then over time, they would run out of food and water. And so they would either, because they're starving, they would surrender the city or they would die. They would just starve to death within the walls of the city. So that's what's happening in our story. So starting 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. Now just speak of that. A donkey's head... A donkey was considered unclean, like the Israelites wouldn't eat a donkey to begin with. But at this point, a donkey's head is selling for about $175 just to be able to peel the skin off of its head and to eat that. And then they talk about a quarter of a cab of seeds, that's about a third of a liter um, of seed pods. And some biblical scholars don't believe that that translation is correct. They actually think that the translation is of dove's dung. Dove's dung was selling for about $11 for a third of a liter. They're starving to death, right? They're starving. So then in verse 26, it says, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, if the Lord does not help you, where can I help you? Where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor, from the wine press? Then he asked her, what's the matter? She answered, this woman said to me, give up your son so that we may eat him today. And tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him, but she has hidden him. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked, and they saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body. And so at this point, the king is grief-stricken, right? I mean, his people had given up all hope. They're eating their children. So he decides to go and confront the prophet Elisha because he represents God. And so Elisha responds in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Elisha replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says about this time tomorrow, a sia, which is about two gallons of the finest flour, will sell for a shekel for about two bucks. And two sias of barley for two dollars a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heavens, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered. Elisha. So Elisha is stating that the famine will end tomorrow, right? But no one is believing him. Verse 3 says, Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. 
At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys, and they left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then finally, their conscience got to them. (laughs) Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. And so they do, and the people celebrate, and the people all run out to the camp to plunder it. And verse 16 says, Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a sea of the finest flour sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. So our title for today's message is Real Hope. Real hope. How do we have hope in the midst of a challenging situation? So I think there's a few things we can get from this story that will help us to have hope this Christmas season, but first let me pray. Father, we come to you and thank you for your word that is true and, uh, and shows us and teaches us. So we pray today that your word would come alive and that you would pierce our hearts because we need this message today, probably more now than ever. Give me your words to speak and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, you can fill this in on your handout if you like. We can have real hope by, number one, remembering the stories. Remembering the stories. So the prophet Elijah in this, in this story is the only one that seems to have hope, right? Like he's the only one that's like, no, tomorrow we're going to have all of this and it's the, the famine's going to break. But I'll tell you this, he had an advantage. He had an advantage. So if you look just a few verses earlier in chapter 6, Elisha was surrounded by the army of Aram. The same army. The king had sent his entire army just after the prophet Elisha. And the reason he was sending his army to just capture Elisha in the town that he was staying in was because Elisha was prophesying and telling the king of Israel wherever the king of Aram would set up his army to ambush them. Because he's a prophet. So he'd say, the Lord would tell him, hey, the army's set up over here. So he'd tell the king of Israel, that's where the army set up. And so they would avoid him. And so the king of Aaron got so frustrated, he sent his whole army to surround this little town that Elisha was in. So his servant gets up in the morning and looks out and sees this army surrounding this town that they're in. And he's afraid. And the prophet Elisha isn't even afraid. And so he says this. He, he actually prays a prayer, and he says this in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16. He says, don't be afraid, the prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. 
Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So here's an image, just an artist's rendition of what my, this might have looked like. So you see this army, you know, surrounding them, and that's what the servant saw. But Elisha saw God's army. He saw God's army. And then Elisha <laughs> prays a little prayer and strikes the entire army with blindness. And then he goes and he leads them. He says, just follow me. And they're following him blind, and he leads them right to the army of Israel. So Elisha had seen this great miracle, right? He had seen this great miracle. He had been deliver delivered before. And so Elisha wasn't afraid. He knew that God had delivered him in the past, and God would deliver him in his current situation. One of the strategies of the devil, our enemy, is to find ways to make us forget about God's past deliverances in our lives. He will remind us of every mistake we've ever made, right? He'll do that, but he'll do everything he can to get us to forget or to discount what God has done for us in the past. He'll say things like this, well, did God really come through for you in the past, or was that just a coincidence, right? Or we'll say, he'll say things like, well, God may have come through for, for you in the past, but you've sinned a lot since then, right? I mean, I don't know that he wants to come through for you again. Or he'll make you question that God's just not even here. Like, where is he? Is he even listening? Does he even care any longer? These are all tactics of the enemy, and they can be pretty effective in making us forget our past. Guys, we need to remember. We need to remember the stories, the times that God has come through for us in the past. The reality is, is that we as humans are incredibly forgetful, right? Men, can I get an amen? amen. Yeah. Wives, can we get an amen for our husbands, right? <laughs> I think it was just this week. Rose, like, Rose is like, do you even listen to what I say? My answer is, I listen, but I forget. <laughs> I just do. So it's not that hard to get us to forget, right? I mean, God knows that we're going to. And we need to come up with strategies to remember God's faithfulness. In the Old Testament, God came up with many ways for the people of Israel to remember his goodness, his miracles. When he freed the people of Israel through the 10 plagues, the last plague was an angel of death came through and killed all of the firstborn. But the angel of death passed over the children of Israel. And so he commanded the children of Israel, you are going to celebrate a feast of Passover every year. And that feast is still happening today. It is an annual reminder of God's deliverance, of his faithfulness. And then in the book of Joshua, we read about how God stopped the Jordan River from flowing, and they crossed the Jordan River during flood stage. They crossed on dry land into the promised land. 
And so Joshua sends 12 men from each one from each of the tri- 12 tribes of Israel to go into the river, into the center of the riverbed and pick up a big rock and he built an altar on the shore to remind the people of Israel for generations of God's deliverance of the miracle that God did. And scripture records miracle after miracle after miracle, right? It's there where we read of God delivering the children of Israel from Goliath through a shepherd boy, David. We read about Gideon, you know, conquering an entire army with just 300 men. We also read of when Jesus conquered death, right? And he rose from the dead. The scripture is full of God's faithfulness. And reading our Bibles is a great way to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness because you can't get very far, you know, just a couple of pages maybe before you're reminded of God's faithfulness. But more than that, guys, we should record our own stories of God's faithfulness. Each of us. I have a journal at home that I call my miracle journal. It's just a normal journal, you know, just a pad of paper. Um, But in it, I specifically write down the miracles that God has done in my life. These are the God stories, um, and I need to be reminded of them. This this past week, I actually read them, uh, several of them, and and I was reminded of all of the things that God did when Rose and I were considering moving into full-time ministry 16 years ago. And God came through and did the miraculous time after time. And then I was reminded of when we started this church, um, you know, five years ago, and the questions that I had during that time of like, I don't know, is anyone going to come? <laughs> Am I ever going to be able to quit working construction? You know, those kinds of questions. Are we ever going to be able to find a place, you know, that doesn't meet on Sunday nights? And God came through again and again and again. And as I read those, as I reread those, I'm reminded, I'm like, oh yeah, he's done that in the past. Not just in scripture, not just for people that I know, he's done it for me. And if he's done it in the past, he'll probably do it again. He'll probably do it again. If you've been following Christ for more than a minute, my guess is that you have some God stories of your own, right? I see some heads like, yeah. Like you have some, but you've probably forgotten a ton of them. I know I do. I forget very easily. So I just want to encourage you today, this is kind of your homework for this week, is to find a notepad, find a journal that's specific towards the activities of God in your life And it's okay to get caught up a little bit. You can write, well, five years ago, God did this. Or three years ago, God did that. Or 25 years ago. But start writing in the stories so that when you're desperate, when you're hopeless, you can pull it back out and go, oh, yeah, God's been there in the past. He'll be there for me today as well. So we got to remember the stories. Got to remember the stories. So we can have real hope by remembering the stories. The second point is this. We can have real hope by hanging 
with the hopeful. Hanging with the hopeful. Elisha replied, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seah of the finest flour will sell for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Elisha was hope-filled. The entire city was desperate, right? But if you hung out with Elisha, right, during those next 24 hours, what would you hear? You would hear Elisha going, oh yeah, he's going to come through. He's going to come through just, just tomorrow. We're going to have this. We're going to have that. You're going to eat tomorrow. Don't, don't worry. It's going to happen. If people had hung out with Elisha, they would have gotten some of his hope, right? Now, I don't know about you, but when I am depressed, when I am hopeless, I don't really want to hang out with positive Pete, right? Or positive, I don't know what you'd say, but positive Pete, right? I want to hang out with negative Nancy, right? I mean, that's who you want to hang out with. Like someone like, man, this really sucks. And they're like, oh yeah, my life really sucks too. And you're like together, you're like, yeah, the life really sucks. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's what we do. But that's not what we need. We need the hopeful, the hope filled. That's what we need in those moments. And the reason is because hope is contagious. Hope is contagious. So you guys know I'm a University of Michigan football fan, right? There's like six of us, maybe three in this auditorium. Um, But I want to share this story with you, not because I'm a fan, but just because I got to witness it. So uh, a week ago, Michigan was playing the game, they called the game against Ohio State, and they're both undefeated, ranked number two and three uh, in the country. And uh, it's the third quarter, the game is tied, and Michigan is driving down, um, but they're, you know, they've been struggling with making the touchdowns, and so right at this critical point in the game, their offensive tackle, Zach Zinter, uh, has his leg broken. All right, it's actually broke. He's a, he's a star, he's a leader on the team, and it was devastating to the University of Michigan. Announcer Joel Klatt recorded a video describing what happened while we were all on commercial break because they took us away from the stadium because of the severity of the injury. And so we didn't get to see this, but Joel Klatt put some video together and described that moment. So watch this video. So Zach Zinter, number 65, the guard from Michigan, he, we knew he pretty clearly broke his leg. Got his knee rolled up on folks that were not going to show it to you. The players that saw him immediately, like on the ground, they knew it. And the air leaves the building. And it is quiet. You can hear a pin drop. And there's a lot of emotion from his teammates there was just an, an outpouring of emotion. Keegan, and this is in a commercial break, was hitting the ground with his helmet, crying. And then something happened that I've never experienced before, calling games. Never experienced it before. Through my headset, I have my headset on during the timeout. And it's hard to hear the crowd unless like the sound from the game is happening. Even though my headset's on, I 
I hear the stadium start to come alive. They're pumping up the air cast. The team is devastated. And the big house starts chanting. I get emotional, I'm sorry. Let's go, Zach. Let's go, Zach. And it's not just one section. It's not just one area. It was the whole stadium. And it was loud. It was so loud, I took my headset off to hear it. And I was blown away. I've never heard a stadium that loud in a commercial book, ever. This was completely human element driven. No music, no band, no PA announcer. And the Michigan fans just start chanting for him. And now the players are like galvanized. And so now all of a sudden his team is like, all right, let's go do this for 65. Zach Center. What happens on the next play? First down and 10 of the 22. Corum dancing. Corum breaks a tackle to the end zone. Blake the great touchdown Wolverine. 22 yards. And what a huge touchdown flashing the 6-5 for his offensive lineman, Zach Zinter, who was just carted off the field. It was incredible. I've never seen anything like it in my career. Michigan went on to win that game. <clears throat> but here's the scenario. Their star has a broken leg. They've seen it. The linemen are in tears because they know that that season is over for him. The air's left the stadium, and somebody says, let's go, Zach. Let's go, Zach. Somebody starts cheering, and it's contagious, and it, and it catches on, and the whole stadium starts cheering, and the Michigan team decides, we can do this. We can do this, even without our star offensive guard. See, guys, optimism, hope, positivity is contagious. And so when we don't have it, we need to surround ourselves with those that do. And we need to let that permeate into our soul. And we need to catch it just like the Michigan football team did in that moment. But here's the deal. If that's what we need, then what do you think the enemy wants us to do in those moments? To isolate ourselves. And so some of you today, that's been your mode of operations. That's been your mode, right? Your M.O. Is that when you get frustrated, when you get sad, when you get depressed... You isolate and you just say, I just need to be alone for a moment, right? I just need to be away from people. I mean, recently I've heard of, of people who are like, 
they change their phone number or they, they delete people from their address book. Like there's this isolation that, that we want to do in those moments, but in those moments when we don't have hope, we need those who have hope for us. We've got to stop isolating. We've got to start running to those who have hope. Forget how you feel. I mean, your emotions are fighting against you. Do what you know you need to do in those moments. We need to. We need to surround ourselves with the hope filled. All right, so that was point number two. We can have real hope by hanging with the hopeful. And then the last point, it's just one that we all need to hang on to, and that's just simply by not giving up. Man, don't give up. Don't give up. The hero of the story here is really not Elisha. Um, I think the heroes of the story are the four men with leprosy. That's what I think. Let me read their story again. They said, Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate, and they said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. If we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, we die. Right? I mean, they had, they had no hope if they went into the city. They had no hope if they stayed where they were. Their only hope was to take this huge risk, right, and go over to the enemy and surrender. I mean, it was in that, that was it. There was no hope in staying. There, there was no hope in going into the city. Their only hope was to take a risk and go to the enemy, to the army, to a very uncomfortable place and beg for mercy. And I love what they did because that's what they, they did. They, they didn't just let depression and hopelessness overwhelm them. They thought there's only one possibility, and it's a small possibility, but we're going to take it. I mean, they're men with leprosy, right? I mean, unclean. Nobody wants anything to do with them, and they said, we're going to go to the army. We're going to go to the enemy, and so they did, and because they did, how many people were actually saved? Um, I mean, they would have eventually probably found out that the army had left, but how many people would have died in the city until that day? They saved countless lives by taking that risk and then not keeping it all to themselves, right? They shared it. Guys, we cannot give up. Cannot give up. We need to keep fighting. We need to keep hoping until the very end. And I don't know what your situation may be, but I do know that as, if you still have breath, you still have hope, right? I mean, We need to keep fighting for our families. We need to keep fighting for our relationships. Keep fighting for our health. We need to hang on to hope until the very end. So don't give up. Don't stop fighting. Don't quit. I've been following God long enough to know that his solutions are incredibly creative. And he can find ways to fix our problems that we could never even dream of. 
So our job is to hang on to the very end and not give up. Theodore Roosevelt said it this way. This is your last fill-in. When you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot and hold on. When you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot and hold on. So we can have real hope this Christmas season by remembering the stories, hanging with the hopeful, and not giving up. I'm going to invite Rose.